0: Welcome, and thank you for joining this podcast brought to you by the American Heart Association. The association's Digital Digest series features a range of podcasts and videos focused on the latest resuscitation science topics. Good afternoon, everyone. I am Mary McBride. I am a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Northwestern University and the chair of the Pediatric Emphasis Group for American Heart Association. And I would like to introduce Drs. Jeffrey Pellegrino and Dr. Nathan Charlton. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with them about the American Heart Association and the American Red Cross first aid focused update. So I'd like to start by asking you both, what is this first aid focused update? Why is it important to the American Heart Association, the American Red Cross, the scientific community? Why should the general public care?
1: Yeah, so the first aid focused update has been a couple of years worth of work in terms of trying to identify the best way to approach first aid And we've really been working through the work products of the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, and their work on clinical recommendations. And we've taken these and we've, as a working group of experts in the United States, have really worked to bring this together for the United States and Canada. And so people who are providing first aid will have a resource to find out some of the newest updates on the science.
0: What evidence, and, and how do you decide what evidence are they based on?
2: These guidelines are primarily based on evidence that is provided to us by the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation. And what that group is, a international group of experts that comes together and evaluates the available science on specific topics. And these topics are generally chosen from you know, those that would really impact the public morbidity and potentially mortality. And so these experts uh, review that science and come together and make that science into these consensus statements that then also involve treatment recommendations. And so then what our group does with the American Heart Association and the American Red Cross we really translate those treatment recommendations to really more of a a practical public aspect of them and then write guidelines that can be used by educators and can be used by the public to help individuals in need of first aid.
0: And so who's the intended audience when this first aid-focused update is written?
1: That's a good question. The guidelines are actually written for people who are going to be practicing first aid. So people who are going to be pre-hospital providers in our minds. The guidelines are actually written for practitioners who are first aid educators and curriculum designers who are going to teach first aid so that they have the latest information on regarding the science, Um, but it's written in context of the first aider themselves.
0: So what sorts of topics were covered in this 2020 update?
2: So, Mary, as you said, this is an update. And so, for older recommendations that still involve current science, we need to refer readers back to the older 2015 and even potentially 2010 guidelines. So, in this update, we did update uh, specific topics that were felt to have new science or were felt to be of particular importance uh, to the public. And so, you know, what we uh, updated this time were recommendations on recognizing stroke, recommendations on providing supplemental oxygen to individuals with a suspected stroke, when to offer aspirin to those with chest pain. Uh, We updated methods of providing glucose for individuals suspected of hypoglycemia, methods to stop life-threatening bleeding, use of compression wraps for recovery from closed extremity joint injuries the media to store avulsed teeth, and then cooling techniques for exertional hyperthermia or heat stroke.
0: You mentioned uh, initially stroke. How have the recommendations changed for stroke recognition?
1: So Mary, to your question about the stroke recognition, what has changed, we've always recommended that lay providers of first aid recognize signs of stroke, but we've actually named these in the 2020 updates. And so that's uh, weakness in the face, such as facial droop or weakness in the arm or hand grip, and then a speech disturbance. And so those are the signs that everybody can work with. We've also, in the 2020 guidelines, have updated the idea that if you can take a blood glucose level and you find that number, that that should be reported to the emergency dispatcher. And that's going to help them dispatch the appropriate
2: resources.
0: Is supplemental oxygen sometimes used for stroke in the first aid context for treatment?
2: So, great question. Uh, Mary, we did want to look at this for the new updates. And so as you know, stroke is a very time-sensitive emergency, but really the treatments that can be effectively done for stroke are done so in the hospital setting. And so first of all, we feel it's of utmost importance to recognize the stroke, you know, contact emergency dispatch and get that Stroke victim to the hospital as quickly as possible. And so, you know, what about then the supplemental oxygen? Well, you know, a, a thought could be that providing oxygen could help the brain function more efficiently, but there are actually no studies in the pre-hospital setting regarding lay providers and the use of oxygen. So we had to use, we had to rely on studies done in the in-hospital setting for those with a confirmed stroke, and actually the data on that is uh, very Uh, conflicting. You know a lot of studies really have failed to show a benefit for those with a confirmed stroke with supplemental oxygen. And so because we felt that you know we would have to extrapolate this data out to the pre-hospital setting, it's really limited and conflicting data in general. And by far we think the most appropriate measure is to get that person to the hospital as quickly as possible. We didn't want the lay providers to worry about providing anything or worrying about anything that might delay care. And so we really want to emphasize that getting that person to the hospital is the biggest thing. And so we really don't recommend supplemental oxygen for use by lay providers.
0: Great. If I can move us to the next topic that you talked about, you mentioned using evaluating chest pain and maybe the use of aspirin. How did those recommendations change for this update?
1: You're right. We've been recommending aspirin for chest pain that's been of cardiac origin or where we suspect a myocardial infarction. And the administration of aspirin has been shown to decrease some of the risks involved with that. So the question is from a first aid perspective is can we really recognize what's a cardiac origin or not? And so we looked at the research and we were trying to identify are there ways or are there any problems with administering aspirin if you have a non-traumatic chest pain of some sort. And we were really looking for evidence to suggest that it should go one way or the other. It came down to the opinion of the writing group that there are a lot of potential benefits for early administration of aspirin, and it outweighed the, any potential risk providing aspirin to an individual experiencing uh, non-traumatic chest pain. And so we wanna encourage that in this round of guidelines. And so this applies to all adults, except for individuals who have an aspirin allergy or individuals who have been advised by a healthcare provider
2: not to take aspirin.
0: What new science will be reported regarding treatment of hypoglycemia?
2: Are these updates really focused on the route of administration of uh, glucose or sugar? And so what has been looked at in the past um, in the 2010 and 2015 guidelines are really you know, how much sugar or glucose to give somebody. And 20 grams is still really what we believe. 20 grams of glucose should be used to treat an individual with hypoglycemia. So we looked at, or this review looked at different methods, including swallowing the sugar, you know, applying something like a spray to the inside of the mouth or a gel to the inside of the mouth, and really what was found was that swallowing the sugar and in most instances, specifically the glucose tablets, you know, swallowing the sugar was, was found to increase blood sugar concentrations more effectively than other methods of administration, such as the buccal sprays, uh, the buccal gels, the things that were applied sort of inside the mouth on the cheek. Uh, there is one exception to this. There was a study that looked at applying a flurry of table sugar to children with hypoglycemia, and actually, in those in that specific population, that route of the administration was found to be really fairly effective. And so, we decided for the guideline that it was an option for children who were conscious but really unwilling to swallow sugar. Uh, you could try to apply a slurry of table sugar to the child's tongue and increase blood sugar that way.
0: And what about life-threatening bleeding? What recommendations or changes uh, will be provided there?
1: Well, believe it or not, Mary, the recommendations had a general bleeding section, but not necessarily one on life threatening bleeding. And the ILCOR task force on first aid made some really nice recommendations in terms of life threatening bleeding, of which our writing group took into consideration. One of the things that we, we really need to continue to emphasize is that direct manual pressure should be applied as an initial therapy especially if you're waiting for some other adjunct like a tourniquet. And so that core skill of direct pressure to stop a life-threatening bleed needs to be really emphasized in what we're doing. And there's really sort of insufficient data to recommend hemostatic dressings, one hemostatic dressing over another, or how we might use specific kind of direct pressure. But I'd like to have Nathan share some of the information that we're talking about for life-threatening bleed on an extremity.
2: Sure, and so, you know, as Jeffrey says, direct manual pressure is a skill that uh, should be learned by everyone. It's a skill that can basically be provided by everyone, and pressure stops bleeding is something that we should really always remember and should be the mantra of really all bleeding control, whether it's mild or life-threatening bleeding. So there are ways of applying direct pressure and indirect pressure, and so as is saying, on extremity, uh, a, a very effective method of applying indirect pressure is a tourniquet. And so tourniquets in multiple military studies and then now civilian studies have really been shown to be really the most effective way of stopping life-threatening extremity hemorrhage. And so you know, we believe while a tourniquet is being obtained, direct manual pressure should be used. But once a tourniquet is available, a tourniquet should be applied to those individuals with with life-threatening hemorrhage.
0: What about compression wraps in the context of sprains or strains?
1: This is one of our favorite ones. We were looking for evidence to suggest that if you apply a compression wrap to, say, an ankle injury, that a person might have fuller range of motion faster or less pain faster than if you didn't. And so looking at that evidence, we really could not find an association between a first aid compression wrap, so something that happens immediately after, that promoted recovery faster than not applying it or uh, applying a different kind of restraint or uh, support to the injury. Despite that, some people may still feel comforted, even though it may not physiologically change a whole lot. And so We're in the guidelines approach to it. We are saying that if you're trained to do it, and you're wanting to do it, and the person wants you to do it, that we didn't find any harm in that end. And it may provide a goal of comfort, which is something that we want to be able to do in first aid. So it's not a strong recommendation, and we're not sure you need to spend a lot of time teaching how to do it. But if you have that skill, you have the equipment, and that person would appreciate it, that it could be applied.
0: Uh, what about an avulsed tooth? What can uh, someone do in the context of first aid do to help a patient with an avulsed tooth?
2: Well, probably the best treatment if a tooth is knocked out, you know, avulsed, uh, would be to put the tooth back in, so immediate replantation of the tooth uh, once it's rinsed off. However, you know, how practical is that? It's probably not practical. I don't know if I could even do it myself. And so you're going w- to want to go to a dentist as quickly as possible. But you know, for that evolved tooth, it's really important that it doesn't dry out. And so you have to keep sort of the base of the tooth and what's known as the periodontal ligament moist. And so there has a, a higher chance of getting that tooth, once it's put back in, uh, to be successfully put back in and be able to grow again. And so keeping that tooth moist is important. And so there have been some studies looking at what solutions or what mediums, if you will, are best to keep that tooth moist. And so you know, something called Hanks Balance Salt Solution has been studied and seems to be very efficacious. Oral rehydration salt solution, so sort of the same thing that you could drink to hydrate yourself. And an interesting one that has been found to keep teeth moist is cling film. So you know what a, a brand of cling film would be like saran wrap, that sort of thing. So wrap the tooth up in that cling film and that's gonna keep the tooth inside moist, all right? And again, these are mediums to keep the tooth moist while you're taking you know, the tooth and taking the uh, patient to the dentist. So certainly not a substitute for going to the dentist. You know, I know some of these might be hard to find. Uh, so if these aren't available, then you could use regular cow's milk of any sort of concentration, and there are varying studies on whole milk versus 1% or whatever, so cow's milk of any concentration uh, or even saliva, um, preferably you know, saliva should be outside the mouth in sort of a, a little you know, tooth protector sort of thing. I probably would recommend storing it in your mouth uh, unless that was the only option that you had, but all those things can be used. Uh, interestingly, when you know, Ilcor looked through all of these studies, there were a lot of other agents that have been used in the past to store teeth, from you know, saline, so salt water, to buttermilk, to castor oil, to turmeric extract. And really, none of those seem to be as efficacious as the uh, agents we talked about earlier. The only thing that we thought probably shouldn't be used is normal tap water. And actually, the studies indicated that tap water could cause harm. So we would avoid tap water, but the other agents, including saliva and clean film, would be great to store the tooth in while you're getting to the
0: dentist. And then the last topic you had brought up uh, was heat stroke. What has been found to be the most effective way to cool a person who's been afflicted with heat stroke?
1: So We were really looking at exertional heat stroke when we were asking ourselves this question in terms of what should people be doing. And exertional heat stroke is truly an emergency condition that a first aider can provide actions that could save a person's life um, or prevent some permanent injuries. So it's important to bring a person's body temperature down as quickly as possible to reduce that risk to organs. And that big organ inside um, our heads is is the most important. And so first aid providers should move an individual as reasonably as quickly as possible out of the hot environment, remove excess clothing, limit exertion, and activate emergency services. Now these are things that have been previously in the guidelines. Where we start to get a little bit more specific in the 2020 guidelines is that we recommend cold water, whole body immersion. And that's from the neck down. And it is the most effective technique from the literature that we found for rapidly reducing the person's core temperature. And it's reasonable to initiate as soon as you recognize that there is heat stroke. And we see some of this evidence come from marathons where people, again, are exerting themselves and getting into heat stroke conditions. And so there might be like a kiddie pool that has ice in it already. So you can put a person in that. If you don't have such a place to put a person, uh, you might think about other cooling techniques such as misting um, with fans and cold water or putting ice packs on their axillary in their armpits and their groin. And those can be effective at lowering body temperature. What we're, again, encouraging people to cool their body so their core temperatures below 39 degrees Celsius or 102.2 Fahrenheit, or because generally first-aiders don't have that type of tool until their neurological symptoms resolve. So they're back talking to you. They're back to sort of a normal mental status. And then, you know, this is a treatment for adults, but we have also recommended this to be treated for uh, children, too and we've extrapolated that down.
0: Fantastic. Well, I wanna thank you both, Drs. Nathan Charlton and Jeffrey Pellegrino for your time and your expertise. Um, It was great talking with you today. Great, Thanks thanks for having us. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. For transcripts of this podcast and more information about resuscitation science, please visit CPR.heart.org or engage with us via social media using hashtag ECC Digital Digest.